Welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak with leaders in the data space, in machine learning, in AI, and we get them to share their secrets, their tips, their successes, their failures, so we can all learn from them, from their stories about how they got to where they are. The intention of this is obviously to help you progress in your career, whether you're coming from a data background or not, you're able to incorporate these lessons into your work and your professional life as more of the world gets consumed by data and AI. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and I hope that you're enjoying it enough to tell other people about it. That is what really helps us continue. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Amy Daly. She is based in San Antonio, Texas in the US of A. Amy, in my opinion, is a fearless visionary leader that wants to use AI for good causes and is eager and hungry to make a difference in the world through the use of AI. It was very, very exciting to speak with her. She, at the moment, is doing a number of things which she tells us about, but one of them is she founded her own AI company earlier this year called Lucia AI. She's also the chair for the IEEE Engineering and Medicine and Biology Society, and she runs the San Antonio chapter for Women in Machine Learning and Data Science. For the people that don't know of the Women in Machine Learning and Data Science organization, they have chapters all around the world, and it is a great way to bring the community together and talk about the specific challenges that the women face in this field. And I obviously asked her quite a lot about that. Always really interesting and really interested to learn more about what it's like and how we can make a difference in that space. It is a great interview. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please let me know. I'm on all the social medias, on email, any way you want. Messenger Pigeon, I'll take it. Here's the conversation with Amy. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Amy. Amy, thank you so much for making the time. I'm really excited to be speaking with you. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, how did your journey in data science start? What was it that drew you into the space? Well, I think the first thing that probably that I want to probably uh, tell everyone that I was always interested in intelligence in humans and in the universe in general. As a kid, I was a tomboy. Um, if you see me when I was a six-year-old or seven-year-old, I would always be hanging out with the boys. And I always was fascinated by our brain and how it works. And I was always curious to know how and why our brain did what they did. And so I always was curious to know like, how can we achieve infinite intelligence or how can a human being achieve a superhuman intelligence? Mm-hmm. Intelligence has always been something in the back of my head. Uh, technology, big fan of technology, space, and I would always watch space cartoons and movies when I was a kid. And so I know, I don't know, maybe because my dad wanted to have a boy and he had three girls and I was his older daughter. So I don't know if that had any influence in my incline for the uh, technology. I was also a very practical person. So I found math very logical that matched my personality. That kind of drove me a little bit in this field. And uh, more specifically, when I was taking my master's, I we came across part of the electrical engineering uh, classes. I took artificial neural networks. And this is when my first exposure was machine learning. And I was really amazed and fascinated by this field and how scientists can be inspired by uh, nature and vice versa, how we can use algorithms and then understand neuroscience or biology. So that intersection between the two fields was really amazing to me. And so I got into that a little bit more. So I started taking a more got involved into uh, machine learning. And also I love to make in my spare time. I'm always thinking about making connections between things and why things are the way they are. And so I found data science that kind of offers that platform for me to kind of set up, to satisfy all of my curiosity and then make relationships between things that people could understand or explain better 
And another thing that probably the reason why I kind of was drawn to this field is data science is such an interdisciplinary field and how we can apply machine learning is unlimited. Not only you can apply it by a medical area, but you can apply it for retail, for government, for even social goods. Anything basically that has a field where you can collect data, we can have, we have a capacity to uh, apply uh, data science. That's probably general all the reasons why I was drawn to this field. That's fantastic. So you did electrical engineering as a bachelor's and, and as a master's, and then you went and started so your working career before going back to college for some time. How has your career been today? What are the things that you've been doing during that, this time? So currently, I just founded my own consulting company. It's called Lucea AI. So I get a lot of people asking, why did you name it Lucea? So Lucea is light for Latin. And so we are a data science analytic company. And our niche is in healthcare and medical organizations. So we want to help organizations to make a better life-changing decisions through machine learning, artificial intelligence. And if you probably knew that um, the healthcare space is lagging a little bit compared to other areas, so I wanted to offer our expertise. I kind of done both. I have, you know, my, the past 10 years, I had several roles in industry as well as academia. So I kind of understand the strengths and weaknesses from both sides. And I kind of, I'm in between. That kind of matches and complement both fields you know, to offer people the type of help that they want. And so that's one thing that I'm doing. But I'm also doing a lot of things on the other side. I'm doing also the chair. I'm the chair of the uh, Engineering and Medicine Biology Society. And also I'm organizing the Women in Machine Learning Data Science Meetup. I love to build communities. I believe that you cannot good work in a vacuum by yourself. You have to constantly surround yourself with people and collaborate. And so currently, this is where, and I'm really happy. It hasn't been an easy journey of people <laughs> look at me and they're like, why now? You know, why not? <laughs> I told them, why not? You know, that's, why not? It's a good time. And it felt the right time for me to be doing this. And this data science has the ability to really help a lot of people. And that offered me the freedom to do that. I love it. And we'll get deep into the issues of starting an AI company and running an AI company at this. Obviously, it's such a tough job. Before we dive in, I wanted to ask you, when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned that your PhD was a pivotal moment in your career. Could you tell us about how that happened? Why was it like that? And what was your trajectory before and after? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, when I started my PhD, I didn't have any warning or anything. I was not prepared for, for that journey. <laughs> I think if I, yeah, if I, maybe I spoke to a couple of PhD people or postdocs, they're probably not going to encourage me. But I think luckily that didn't happen. My original plan when I started my PhD was to pursue a career in academia. And the reason for that is, number one, wow. I wanted to pursue freedom in science, exploring what I want to explore. And number two, I love dealing with students and I love teaching and kind of being up and close and impacting people in that sense. So it took me five years to finish the whole process. And that's about the average time for a clinical PhD time. So it was challenging in the sense that it's shaped me to a resilient person that I am today because I changed the way I approach problems and find solutions and most importantly accept criticism, right? Because mm. you are in your PhD, you're surrounded with these highly intelligent people and you think you know everything and you don't you don't really know anything because I think to graduate with PhD you need to come up with something innovative and different than anybody else. So it's all about creating something new new algorithm that's going to be my contribution. And so it's learned, I had a couple of advisors and each advisor had taught me different skills in life. And so I think my first advisor, he's the one who probably taught me, I mean, this is without knowing, he taught me how to be an entrepreneur. I used to look at him and I wow. could see how this advisor, he would send me to, you know, he started teaching me how to organize conferences and how to be a chair of a conference and how to network. And I saw him, my advisor, he would collaborate with so many people, not just here in the States, but internationally, worldwide. And I saw how he was doing business. And I saw how he would face failure or letdown. So not everything worked. And I see how he would always be consistent and how he would pick things up, even though things don't work the first time, second time around. And so before my PhD, if something didn't work, I would probably quit, right? I'm like, oh, okay, it didn't work. I guess let's pick something else or let's choose another path. But I guess when I was absorbing my advisors and people are in academia in general, you have to be very 
strong because everything that they do faces a high rate of rejections, right? Like if you want to write a grant or publish a paper, everything takes forever just because of the nature of the academia, very highly competitive. And so you need to have that level of that your threshold to rejection has to be really high compared to average people. And initially when I started, I didn't have that. And maybe as a woman too, I was not, I was so used to maybe pleasing everyone and it took me so many years to kind of become that this strong person and kind of build that drive to start projects on my own. So one person also taught me how to do good research and think critically. And the fact that if you can finish a PhD, you can pretty much do everything in life. That's pretty much, <laughs> you know, that's what the hardest thing. That's what I, I tell everyone. If you can do a PhD, you can do anything. Because I had to go through so many, I had to pick the ideal projects and a project that's not going to last only a couple months, but you need to have that good sense of judgment to judge what a good project that's going to be, that's going to contribute to society and that that's going to last for three to four years. And so there's so many skills that you're doing. So in a sense, if you're having a small startup, right, you have come up with your own idea and then you kind of propose it, see what people think to your committee. And then at the end of the day, whether you build an algorithm or whatever the output of your PhD is going to be, that should take couple of years and, and then you start publishing your work. And so in a sense, that kind of without knowing all this was happening and I didn't know, I mean, I kind of developed all these skills together, all of them together. And of course, super challenging, which is great because I easily get bored. I love the challenge that PhD offers for me and the ability to believe in myself and to chase after what I thought it was good and right for me. And what kept you going during the times where the PhD was really tough? So that's very interesting. So I had some colleagues, my friends of mine. I was kind of like to have that support for my friends. And also my future advisor, who was more of a dad to me, who would always give me encouragement and he would give me tough love sometimes if I'm not submitting things on time. But I think that close relationship allowed me to kind of finish that line and, and to remember why I entered. I started my PhD to start with. And uh, another thing, I'm not a quitter. If I start something, I'm just not going to. I have to finish it, and then I'm glad I did. That's excellent. Uh, where does that come from for you, the drive and the perseverance? I think for me, it's probably something, I wonder if that's something that my dad instilled in me when I was a kid. That's something I always very optimistic as a person, and I always feel like you have to try something at least three times before you give up. And that's just something that I think I learned in the past, because sometimes, you know, it works. You do yeah. it three times, and then the first time it works, and then it changes your outlook in life and your path. So as long as you're not doing the same thing over and over again, right? As long as you're changing your, your ways of thinking or way of doing it. But I think it's something that I was maybe... Yeah, that's great. So obviously, you mentioned before you were thinking about being an academic or a researcher. Mm -hmm. And then during that time, did you decide to become an entrepreneur then or was it down the track? Yeah, that didn't happen until after a couple industry jobs after the PhD. So what happened for a while I was doing my PhD, I realized that in two years down the road, I just realized that I'm more of a problem solver. I like to use my skills to solve problems and rather than creating innovative, not creating innovative work, but I think it was highly competitive and the pace was low, low compared to industry. And I kind of missed the collaboration. Collaboration was somewhat easier in industry than in academia. Mm -hmm. Academia, you are on your own and you have to do everything on your own. So if you're coming up with a project, you have to look for your own, send your own grants. And I'm sure the academia was a lot of people you know, enjoy the work. But for me, for my personality, I felt I loved the, ha the high pace, the fast pace of industry. And it was more structured than academia. And you can get the recognition of awards almost instantly. The projects are rolling. And they're also, when you're changing, especially when you're consulting, you get exposed to so many companies and so many fields. And you learn at, at such a faster rate than academia. Yeah. So that was one reason why I decided to switch from academia to industry. And then after the industry, I worked as a data scientist and a data scientist at uh, USA. So this is really interesting. I moved a little bit from the medical field because I was doing my PhD was I developed a um, machine learning model that categorizes the um, stages of tumors. And I also did some postdoc work at the University of Texas Health Center. And I think that's another thing. Um, yeah, that's another thing that played in the decision when I did some uh, postdoc work. I just realized I was just, uh, I missed being going to industry and uh, it was a little bit more structured. 
than the uh, academia. And so I worked at USA as a data scientist, and that offered me the opportunity to really get my hands dirty on the big data tools and what is the big data, because as a data scientist, you know, you want to get your hands dirty on data. Data is very expensive mm. to get, not cheap. And so although it was a financial company, but building a machine learning model or deep learning model, model is a model you can apply it on any types of data. And so that was the transition for me from the uh, academia to industry to being an entrepreneur. <laughs> That's incredible. And how did you pick healthcare as the area of application, yeah. both for your PhD and for your company? Yeah, so that was interesting. So I... One thing that was really important for me, that's one of the mission, one of my values and mission is to whatever I'm doing with my skills, I want to impact society, right? I don't want to just use my skills for entertainment, you know, so to just, you know, entertainment for no, I want it to really impact society in a way that I can. And um, I picked healthcare, especially after having kids, I became really interested in the biomedical world. And I took one biosatonic class. And I was really amazed by how we were going, we were learning about all these modalities that they have the ultrasound, the MRIs, and how all those, let's say, for example, x-ray and ultrasound, how it interacts with a human cell. So for me, that intersection between technology and how our human process technology was really fascinating. And better yet, how we can use technology to even better the diagnosis, the diagnosis, and especially when you're seeing, there's some there's certain things that impact our life. So me as a woman, so my first data set that I was working on was building machine learning models to detect cancer and, and for breast cancer patients. And so me being a woman, I felt there was a connection or felt like it hit, not hit home, but for me, I felt somewhat, somewhat compelled to kind of use my skills in that area. And uh, there's so much need when I was working at uh, UK Health Science, I could see doctors, biologists, they generating a large amount of data, but they don't have the technical skills to process it. So I just saw that need in that space and I wanted to be part of it. And it's been my passion ever since. Been just digging my hole. <laughs> I've been just, the more I read about it, the more passions I've become about it. And yeah, so just recently I went to NVIDIA conference and even NVIDIA, they started a whole healthcare, which was really fascinating. They started a Clara uh, platform. So it's going to be specialized for hospitals. So they're going to offer a deep learning platform for hospitals. So that's something that I want to be part of as well, that revolution to kind of bring healthcare and hospitals, bring them up to speed for AI and physicians and bring them up to speed. Great. And why did you say that having kids made you more interested to work in healthcare? I think there's a lot of things. I think you become a more compassionate human being. Uh, I think you probably know when you don't have kids, you're probably thinking only about yourself. And mm-hmm. so when you're having kids, you go through the whole process and it changes you as a person. And, and you don't think about yourself. You think about what's going to be good for your kids and they go through certain challenges or diseases. And you want to be part of helping any kids who are going through any diseases or anything. So, I mean, I didn't have a specific reason. But it's just being a mom kind of made me more compassionate uh, in that area. I can totally understand. (laughs) For me, I think it's early days still with my daughter at Uh six months now. And the adjustment has been tremendous. (laughs) But I think we're still getting over the the initial really hard phase with like little sleep and trying to maintain productivity and bandwidth while being a zombie. And it's (laughs) our first, yes. (laughs) Okay, that explains it. That explains it. Does it get better? Yes, it does. Definitely, it does get better. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah, you. Well, I don't Thank know you. Probably after ten years. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. No, I think it's, yeah. No, it does get better, and then you have a third one, and it becomes even better. Because yeah, when you become a parent, and you know a lot of things, and you go to a hospital and see the way things, the machines that they're using, and you think about you, you think like, well, maybe we can come up with something better that is less invasive. That so that got me thinking about a lot of things in the space coming from a, a parent point of view, and how I can use my skills to benefit society and as a whole. So that's one of my mission before I die. I always tell everyone. <laughs> what is the exact mission? Mission leave a legacy behind me to feel like at least I, so one step towards that is first creating this company that I consulting company. And I have another thing that I'm working on because uh, right now we're relatively speaking new. So it's been just a couple more months. So the first month when I was doing this, I had no idea how to start a business. I mean, I had no knowledge about business, but I'm a kind of person that 
I can learn anything, right? I mean, what is it that we cannot do? We're, you know, these days we can go online, we can read books and can ask questions and it's a good time to embark in any you know, kind of adventure you want. And so for the first few months, I was just busy just understanding the business and legal terms and how to file for a company and what is it S corporation? What is it C corporation? And so it took time. But something in the long term that I wanted to do for a uh, company is to have a branch AI for impact. So something that we're going to start maybe either develop some work either in a third world country or how can we come up with algorithms or AI projects that serve the underdeveloped countries. Or that's something that also that's really dear to my heart. And I know in Africa, they have some couple groups over there that they're doing that. And so I would love to have something and be part of that movement as well. So I'm building baby steps toward that bigger goal as long as I have that input or that impact, basically. That's fantastic. And depending on where you are on that journey and how you're going, I had a, recently a, a past guest. His name is Ru Mitra. He's running a global not-for-profit that is getting AI challenges from other not-for-profits and from non-government organizations and governments. They're sending mm-hmm. his organization, they're sending them AI challenges that they have to improve the lives of people oh, wow. in third world countries or less fortunate. And then he's crowdsourcing the AI talent to tackle the challenges. He said he's always looking for help. So maybe we can keep having a conversation afterwards and and, uh, connect you guys in some way. Yeah. So they're offering the AI, they're crowdsourcing the AI to other countries to offer them the chance to kind of develop some of the codes, right? Correct. Really, really interesting. And what has surprised you the most about starting your AI company? What has been something that you didn't expect that it was going to be the way that it is? For me, probably understanding the legal terms. Like I'm not a businesswoman, but that's not the hardest uh, part. Um, thinking all that the surprises. I don't know if I have been. There were any big surprises in general. Especially with this day and age, I mean, I've signed all your help. Like I had people to help me start my business in legal terms and kind of make it legal. Maybe finding the right place where I can maybe have my office or have my company. But I've been lucky. I found a space and then it was like a, it's a co-work, especially now with co-working spaces. I don't know what I've done like a couple of years, you know, back. But because of these co-working spaces, I have my office there and you meet other people who are doing the same things that you. So you don't feel you're out of place and you reach out if you have any questions. For me, nothing really stands out that I think that I can think about right now that surprised me. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think being part of an entrepreneurial community is so important. It really helps on your development and your mental sanity. I think maybe a lot of people, just because I went through that PhD and that PhD, that's what it, that's why I'm saying it. I think it was helpful. The PhD was such a lonely project for me and I didn't Mm. realize that I did not like to be so excluded. It was such a lonely journey because I had to finish my project. You're on your own. You're on your own PI. And so that was really hard on me. And so a lot of people probably who are in this venture or same journey as me, if they're moving from industry to starting a company, probably, or even consulting, I think they're going to feel it's such a, um, a solo journey. And a lot of people quit after a couple of months because they're not yeah. part of a system. You can understand why you're by yourself, you work from home, and you're not connected, part of a big ecosystem. You can understand why a lot of people wouldn't want to pursue that. And they're going to say, well, I think it's better if I just go back and work in industry where it's better because it's structured and I'm part of a team. But I think I think I kind of thought about it ahead of time when I was doing this. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> So that's why I look for a co-working space and I really kind of, I'm well networked. I'm, I think I, I told my husband, I'm like, uh, I have my tentacles everywhere. <laughs> I am kind of like connected to here and Austin and everyone else. So it's very important to be connected and be part of the community because otherwise, especially in the, I'm planning right now to start a data science consulting group in, at LinkedIn just so we can have all the, or data science consultants that have a space or platform where you can share the ideas. What are the best practices? Because another thing that, because data science is such a new field, I feel that nobody had come up with uh, any kind of standardization, right? Or any way of just unify the practice, especially when it comes to, let's say, for example, as a data science consultant, how can I price a project? I had no idea. 
there aren't a lot of data scientists around me, consultants around me to ask these questions. And a lot of things are done in the field. There is no like one way of doing it or unified way. So maybe that's one thing that probably not surprised me, but it was one of my challenges. Uh, data science is such, it's not a regular, a premium service, right? So it depends on the kind of data that you have. You always don't know like what's the price that you're going to charge for. How long can you charge? Are you going to charge per hour or per project? How do people do it? What's the right way, right? And those things are a little different because a lot of people, even in the consultant industry in, in the past, they probably, it was just a little different. Very true. What have you found the toughest during your journey? What's kept you going during the tough times? I think my passion. I'm so passionate yeah. about my field. I don't see myself doing anything else. I also, when I do regular my meetups, I see, you know, they tell me I'm their role model and I have to be that role model for a lot of women, right? I feel like I have that responsibility and I can't give up, right? I mean, things are going to be hard for sure. Whatever you're going to do with life, things are going to be hard. But I think you just, as long as you go and start talking, have a support system, basically, of people who are doing the same thing as you yeah. and just uh, share whatever your challenges, what are the things that are bothering you? Or, and so I'm a deep in heart. And so I don't see myself doing anything because what I'm meant to do. I think in life, people see all my past experiences in life. Um, so like 10 years ago, if you tell me what are you going to do, what do you want to do? I would have never guessed in a million years that I would be doing consulting and data science, right? I thought, you know, life is a straight line, but they tell you it's a straight line, but it's never really a straight line. It was not for me. <laughs> So it was for me was by trial and error and try what works for you, what doesn't work. For me, I have a different personality than a typical engineer. The reason why I moved from a typical engineering position, I felt like I needed that social interaction. I needed that part of my job. So that's something that was, I kind of stood out from my peers. I kind of wanted to talk and I wanted to present. And that wasn't something that a lot of people shared with me. And so I didn't know this was the case for me. I think we probably know we don't have a lot of role models in our field. Um, we had had a lot of like male, great male role models. But uh, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of uh, women role models who are doing the same thing. So I can just see what they're doing in it. So I kind of had to forge my own path and find what works for me and you know, trial and error and do plan A and see how it goes. and couple of years and then design B and then you find that that niche that very thing that kind of fits you because you know if you think about it we're all different people with different passions we're not all going to be sitting in the same kind of shape right we're all shaped differently that's the way I see it very true and speaking of the fact that you're finding it difficult to find female role models I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you more about that space I might ask you, and, and definitely want to ask you about the meetup beforehand, mm -hmm. I'll, I think I'll ask you, how has it been for you as a female in the data space? For how me, has that been? Yeah, it's been, for me, it's been great. I mean, I have never, just because maybe the way I see things, maybe I see a process things differently. For me, I have never felt, rarely, I felt discriminated again. Or for the most part, I am who I am because of all my peers who happen to be, for the most part, male, right? Men. They yeah. shape me who I am. So actually, most of the, my, I'm so used to being, if I we have conferences, if we have meetings, I'm always the only woman in the room. And I got so used to that. But I never felt, I never felt really discriminated against or that's been my experience, but not necessarily experience of all the other friends that I, you know, my friends. But it's definitely sometimes you feel when I was working in the business world, if people don't understand your background, let's say if I'm working in the business and I'm coming mm -hmm. from an engineering background, if they don't understand your background, you definitely have to do some proving, some more work than probably, you know, your typical uh, peer. But I don't think I've been discriminated against or, or anything. I'm kind of a very outspoken person, and I'm not shy to, if something was not right, I would confront it. <laughs> it happened more than once or two times. I would solve things. I would try to kind of solve them, resolve them if I can. But if I had, when I was working as a data scientist, I think I had only one female. And it's been really great to have another woman. Sometimes it's, it's a lonely journey. That's all I can say, probably. It's been a lonely journey. So when I had my colleague who happened to be a female, it's nice to see somebody who's going through the same milestones as you, right? So she was a mom, she had kids. So we kind of helped each other, support each other in that sense. But it would be nice if you have more women in that space, encourage them more. And so that's probably my take on that. 
And is that how you, uh, what led you to doing the meetup? And can you tell us a bit about yeah. that? When I was working at the last company, we didn't have a lot of women in the field. And what I noticed, a lot of women are scared from even the word AI. So a friend of mine who co-founded a company here in San Antonio called Funnel AI. So she told me, I'm throwing all these events and I don't have any women. And so when I sat down with someone, I did a survey and I've listened to all you know, my members and what they have to say. And they said that, yes, they are um because when they go to these events, typically they find mostly, you know, men, right? And so they mm. think it's oh, AI is probably not something that a woman can do, or it just never looks really friendly. And so that was the number one reason why I wanted to do this. I wanted to tell them, hey, you know, this is such an interesting field to be, and there are so many ways where you can have impact, right? You can do AI to help society, to help, you know, in the healthcare, where women tend to be more on the passionate side, right, on the health and nurturing side, for the most part, not everyone, but for the most part. So there is a lot of opportunities for women at that space. And then I think the only thing, the reason why I started the meetup is to offer a, a place where women can be better educated, right, about the field, and it's even explore different roles. You don't necessarily have to be a programmer. There's so many other roles that you could take part of, you know, being in the, in the field. And so that was number one, the reason why I did that. I, I want them also to show them that, yes, it's okay to do hard things. Sometimes when I'm, especially in a data science, you're constantly learning different software, right? But we want to show people that, hey, you know, it's okay to take on something that is difficult and challenging. You know, you don't always know everything, right? And I think I was always with male colleagues and I kind of saw how they're learning versus how I was learning. And so I learned from them a lot. So guys would always, for example, if they don't know something, they're not going to tell you, I don't know. They're going to tell you, this is what I think I know. And they're going to have something, right? But say, they're not going to ask you a question. If same thing when they're, when the candidate applied for a job, for example, if a woman saw a requirement that she probably doesn't need, she's not going to apply for the job. But a male colleague, for example, whoa. <laughs> but I kind of learned that confidence and you have to learn that confidence to just say, well, I kind of have to apply for these opportunities, even though I don't meet every, all the requirements. Mm-hmm. And I think for women, for the most of them, uh, I think they want to be, I think they're disciplined or raised to be perfectionist. And if they're not perfectionists, then they can't, you know what I mean? If you're a perfectionist, you can't pursue certain job opportunities or you can't have. So it all comes down to, I think, self-confidence and uh, self-esteem. And uh, when I learned from my peers, they taught me, like most of my role models are guys, I kind of learned from them and have to be assertive and follow your dreams and be a go-getter and kind of be more, a little bit, not aggressive, but a little bit feisty, I would say, in a nice way. It's okay. And if you're passionate about something, follow it. You can know if you're going to fall. You expect to fall. That's part of life. That's how you learn. And I think maybe women are a little bit more scared to, to fail, And but it's okay. And so that's why I wanted to do this meetup to kind of show them, okay, that, you know, this is, this is my experience and I'm not the most intelligent person, but I'm a hard worker and I believe in myself and I just persevere. That's the only thing. That is fantastic. So working hard, believing yeah. in yourself, persevering. Those are skills that are so important. Definitely set people apart. They put you on a really great trajectory and they don't need any education for it. It's about exactly. attitude. Exactly. Attitude and drive. And I get a lot of people asking me, oh, do I have to have a PhD to become data scientist? In my opinion for that, you don't need to have a PhD. And a lot of women, just because it happened, a lot of data scientists happen to have a PhD and that's the next. I mean, they just happen to be a good data scientist because they're training. But I tell to all my friends or the women in data science the meetup group, I tell them, you don't need to have a PhD as long as you're learning and you acquire the knowledge and you build a good portfolio. And then you, especially these days with all the free online courses, you can do Coursera, Udemy. There's so many uh, ways that you can learn data science. There's also meetups. It's also a great way of collaborating with other people. And collaboration in our field is so important. Um, Especially in a software development, um, you cannot do everything alone because you get stuck, you have a bug. A lot of learning for us happens online. So if you have to be comfortable with that collaboration, even with people that you don't know, but I was really impressed with uh, how much help you get from open source community. Maybe that's what I got excited also. I think from moving from academia to industry, 
So when I worked in academia, so we used to use a MATLAB, which is a, uh, I don't know if you heard of MATLAB, which is, uh, it stands for Matrix Laboratory. It's a high-level technical programming language. It's a very expensive, so it's not an open source. When I would get stuck, for example, there aren't a lot of people, you know, to help you. The community wasn't very strong. But when I moved to industry and I just fell in love with Python, because the amount of, first of all, not only because it's such a sophisticated and beautiful language, but you can do so much with just a few lines of code and it's short and clean and better than that i just love the huge community the open source all the libraries that people build that i can just for my phd i think i built my own function and how i can do my machine learning and when i go to python i can just use a library that somebody already used and just built on that and just my i could be productive productive pretty fast and so maybe that's why i think i became a big fan of uh, maybe a data science and the open source uh, world sorry i'm going off topic a little bit no it's great it's really good and yeah. can you tell us the name of the meetup and whether it's part of our global set of meetups what is yeah, that very good question very good question so when i started originally when i started the San Antonio Data Science Meetup. Well, there wasn't a lot of movement when it comes to data science compared to Austin. You probably know Austin, there's a lot of the big tech hubs for data scientists and entrepreneurs. So San Antonio, I was not sure what kind of talent we have and we're all scattered everywhere. And so I started a data science meetup so we can have this one place where everybody could gather. And so this is when I started to get a feel of the talent that we have in San Antonio and which was more geared towards like the beginner level, people who are mainly developers and exploring to become a data scientist. And when I was doing these meetups, it was I was really surprised. I didn't even know. It was so stressful for me to do that because I, I didn't think I was a social person, but yeah. it was really stressful. Look for venues and heavy people, but it was such a hit for my first meetup. We had at least 40 people, and then pretty soon we could maybe had to look for a big room. So people were starving for this kind of information or places. And then I realized that we don't have not a lot of women would show up. And so I was thinking, well, is it because during the time, is it because I'm scheduling, you know, if I do lunch bag, maybe it's better or try to make it so we can maximize attendance for women. And then two years later, or I think three years later, I was contemplating of starting a data science, a women data science meetup, but it was hard because if I start something in my own here, I think it would have been, um, I knew that I wouldn't have had the support that I needed. So this awesome opportunity, kind of, I came across this awesome opportunity, which is the name of the meetup. It's called, so this is the uh, Women and Machine Learning Data Science Meetup. So this is a global meetup and started it by a chief of data science H2O in California. So she's the one who's actually making these groups possible for us. And they have, I don't know how many chapters, but they have chapters across in every single country that you can think about, including several countries in Africa and in Paris and of course UK, Amsterdam. Anyways, it's scattered wow. across the world. And the one what made this move for me really practical and hopeful is the fact that I can take my community here in San Antonio and they can plug in, for example, Slack, which is, a chat. I don't know if you're familiar with Slack, but it's a place where people can chat and you can plug it to that community, which is connected worldwide. Because my community here is so small. If I start with five, six people, if I open a Slack channel, for example, I'm not going to have a lot of interactions or activities mm. or career, you know, for people who are looking for career, the insight or, but then you plug my small community to this worldwide network. And one thing that I love about this community is the amount of support that you get. For example, if somebody's looking for a job or somebody's stuck at the code or, or anything, they're exposed to all these help or support. And so in a way, we are in San Antonio, but we have the support of the global support of all the other networks. And so that's why I became really hopeful that this group is going to work. And now I have, I think last time I checked, I have one of three or one of two members. And it's been, and I'm the worst. I know, it's just amazing. I didn't know we had this amount of people here in San Antonio. So we have next week an event that's happening, a woman and AI panel. And I wanted to gather women from different walks of life, from industry, academia, even um, teach women uh, how to start get into venture capitalism. You know, what are the fun resources available for women entrepreneurs? All these things are not something that you get exposed to, you know, either school or industry. So mm-hmm. we're providing that platform for women to get together and then a nice safe place, provide that kind of learning for them. So that was the thought process. 
I had to think about it, but I'm glad that it was done by this global meetup. And if you can check it out, I think it's www.wimlds.org. And that will connect you to the global website. And then you can see all the chapters. Also, you can also get connected to a directory of the list of women who are involved in the AI space. So if you're looking for speakers, if you're looking for anybody, I'll usually reach out to that directory. That's a great resource. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And can you tell us a bit about your chair position? Yeah, so I had something that kind of kind of fell in my lap, which is good. So something that can add to my passion. I'm very passionate about this area. So this society is an intersection between engineering and technology and medicine and biology. What I am doing, so I just, this is a new role for me. Just started this role here in San Antonio. So we're hoping to revive this community here in San Antonio. And it's a similar, it's similar skills as the meetup that I'm currently um, leading. And so I think one thing that I probably didn't know, I just love connecting with new people maybe more than maybe average person. <laughs> so for me, I was really happy. I was able to bring speakers. I'm able to bring speakers uh, pretty quickly. Um, I think I just love to learn about different people. And uh, so this is a new role that I am starting. So the society here is part of the IEEE, which is the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's our professional organization to the um, sister engineering organization. It's a huge professional organization. And uh, we are organizing programs and activities to better serve our members. That's going to be really good, kind of build a very strong community here in San Antonio, kind of understand the talent and the need and just to kind of better serve our, our members here. And also, they're getting into data science as well. That's something that they're curious about. They don't know how to use data science yet. And so it would be nice to have that audience, that outlet to kind of add that audience to the data science community as well. Really good. I'm so impressed about how much you're doing between I know, running I, your company. I, I, know, I know. And sometimes, you know, I tell my husband, I don't know how I can do all this, but it's my passion. And, it's, you know, if it's your passion, it doesn't feel like work, but it's interesting for me. And I guess that's how it starts. Exactly. And how are you balancing it all? I, I need some tips. Something. <laughs> as a woman, yeah, as a woman, that's something that I've been pondering on for the past 10 years. And they tell you there's a balance, but honestly, I don't think there's a balance. It's really, I'll tell you the, the balance, the way I understand balance, the way the balance that has worked for me in the past. It's not a balance that probably day to day, but it's something like a balance that makes sense that based on your, um, on your load, right? So for example, I find myself also when my kids were younger, I was a little different than my kids are older. So that requires a different kind of different balancing. The way it works for me right now is, for example, if I have, let's say one day, I have more workload, right? Then I would have to spend more time working and less time with family, right? But then I would have to make that those lost times the next day, right? So hopefully the next day, hopefully I will cut up with work and I will spend more time with family, right? So for me, like being an engineer was balanced. I thought about it, that maybe it's a 50-50, but that was a really struggle for me to kind of mm. do that 50-50 thing. And also working with another woman, it helps a lot to kind of learn from her, my friends, and see what works for her. But it's just hard. It's not easy. Uh, you have to be extremely, I think, strong and surround yourself with people who are in the same boat. But as my kids uh, always felt like my family was number one priority. It's always number one priority for me. And it gets easier when they get older. As they get more independent, they make their own choices, right? <laughs> when they're little, you kind of have to be more involved. But the balance that kind of works for me, that's the kind of balance that works. In the sense that I could not do 50-50 every day because this just doesn't make sense. Sometimes work yeah. require more of my time than my family. Sometimes, depends on what's going on at home, maybe my family needs more time for me. So it's an adaptive. It's an adaptive algorithm that I'm using. <laughs> yes, it's not something that it's like every day I'm doing the same thing. It's just based on the need and the demand. I'm just reacting and checking with everyone. And if my family is happy and then work is happy and Special some time for your own passion as well. Don't let yourself go. I have to remind myself, like, I have to do the thing that I enjoy as well, even though it's only five minutes, right? And so that's another thing that keeps me going, keeps me sane. Really good. I wanted to change tact and I'll ask you some of the questions that have accumulated over from the listeners over time. The first one is, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? 
I think the first thing that I'm proud of getting that PhD, that was number one, with kids. Because when I was doing my master's, I was pregnant when I was doing my master's, and again with my PhD, people thought I was crazy. And so I really wanted to have a PhD before age 40, and I didn't. And it was extremely hard, but I'm that's nice. probably one of the most things that I'm proud of, of course, after having kids, right? Mm. <laughs> but uh, career-wise, career-wise, that's uh, one of my most proud moments. Number two, that I was able to start a company, and that's a possibility. I wasn't sure. For me, I always tell people, the way you predict your future is to create it not from the known, but from the unknown. This is like a famous nurse scientist. That's his saying. I kind of stole that quote from him, but it made sense for me. Because people always love to stay with what's familiar, but oftentimes you're not really creating your best future, right? And when I was doing my PhD, all the creations and innovation happened in the unknown space, right? And the unknown space is not comfortable, right? Nobody is comfortable in the unknown space. It can be a little bit not painful, but uncomfortable. And so I learned bear with that pain, knowing that it will the outcomes will come out later and then things will get better as you know, as long as I'm not sitting like that for a year, but uh, that's something that starting my own company and a lot of people think, oh, you're crazy. Nobody knows what's inside, what's your passion. There's only one of you in this world and only you know what you're capable of, right? And so I've been always very highly intuitive person and I have a vision. It's a very strong vision in my head, and I always see it happening. And um, sometimes I feel I live in the future, which is not good. <laughs> sometimes it's not good, but I can see things happening, and uh, I like to act on them. But of course, it was scary. And that's, so probably this is my second maybe proud thing that I'm proud of. Yeah. Really good. I wanted to ask you about a perceived failure that you had at one point, that when time went on and you look back at it, it actually helped you get to greater success do you have a time where you felt it was a setback but in reality it was almost like a preparation or a springboard to greater success down the road it depends what's the definition of a failure because i think every person can look at the failure and look at it differently right i mean in the past mm. i thought the failure was a bad thing but for me it's just something that teaches you something it makes you think about whatever it is that caused that failure right so it's a teaching moment for me when that failure happened i step back and i'll reevaluate everything so as an engineer i always have to say okay well how can we design the system better make it work better right <laughs> well let's see what did we do wrong here why are we doing this and why is this thing happening so i am always analyzing the situation but for me if you look maybe in my career if you look at my background the reason why i changed so much because i felt like either i'm not achieving in my full potential or I was not allowed to achieve my full potential in a certain mm -hmm. environment. So for me, maybe I would say when I was maybe working as a postdoc, when the projects were so difficult and oftentimes, you know, if you talk to anybody who's doing like some doctorate work, some projects that they give you, they're almost impossible. And some of these projects, it's like a five or six person job. And sometimes you feel like I had some impossible uh, projects and you feel like, okay, you work hard and you're not delivering, you know, to your maximum potential. And you said to yourself, like, for me, that was, I would say, not a failure, but it was a setback for me. And a time for me to reflect, is this the path that I want to go? Is this the environment? Is this, a, you know, a healthy environment or an optimum environment for me to give me the growth that I was looking for? And, you know, my life was full of failures. You know, just a lot of people don't see that. Yeah. But, uh People fail, people, you know, you fail, you succeed, it's just life. And the more things you do, the more failures you have. And so, the, you know, so are the successes. And so for me, I think I didn't feel like that environment provided me with the best experience for me to become the person I want to be. And so I thought back then I was really upset and I thought that's something that you decided to switch to industry, but that turned out to be the best decision I ever did. Every single thing that I did in the past turned out to be just as good. I'm glad all those, I had to go through all those experiences because otherwise I wouldn't have, I don't think I would ever started my company, honestly. <laughs> if things worked out yeah. fine and I was happy, I would just stay wherever I am and I would have never knew how fulfilled I was going to be or I would have never knew how happy I was going to be when uh, starting these meetups. And I just didn't know that I loved building communities and tribes. And I just didn't know that. So sometimes difficult conditions and experiences kind of forces you to get out of your shell and do the things that otherwise you would have never tried.
Fantastic. That's really, really great. This has been so much fun. I only have one last question for you. And do you have a takeaway or a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? Yes, of course. So maybe one of the pieces of advice, I, I kind of like, uh, so I'm going to go from maybe more specific advice to more general advice. So a lot of people, they think they need to have a PhD. So this is something that we already talked about. And for us, I know a lot of people who founded companies and I see how they hire talent. If you have the knowledge and if you're passionate, you have to drive. And if you prove that you worked on projects or you built your portfolios, anybody can be data sciences, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something education is good, but it's not something that a lot of people should look for. Oftentimes, I found a lot of smart people who are doing awesome work uh, with many years experiences. And so as long as you know your, your stuff, I think you should be okay. Another thing that in our field, which is communication skills are very important and also invest in relationships early because you never know when those relationships are going to become handy. I think when you want to basically networking and build your network early on without really having an agenda, be generally interested in people because you just want to talk to them and interested in their work. Um, and then early on, you start building that, you know, your network will become richer. And I had so many opportunities just for my network. Sometimes I don't have to work as hard as, as before, just because of the, also when you're plugged to a rich network, it, you plug into that rich experience and knowledge, right? So you kind of download all that knowledge from them and kind of you move a little bit faster instead of just by yourself and trying to do things on your own. So that's another thing. Another thing is, Stay motivated. Data science community tends to be small. And so I can guarantee you probably in every city you can have a meetup group or conference or go to those meetups. Even if you have no idea what the speaker is going to talk about, that's something, you know, just go there and showing up is the first step. Just show up and introduce yourself. And, and I think I always tell my, you know, people that I know, it's okay if you don't know anything. And um, stay curious, of course, as, you know, Never stop learning, and uh, I think the best advice I can give to everyone and uh, whoever is listening, uh, connect with me. I love to learn from different people, connect with different people. And so, yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for your time, for sharing your journey, for being so open with everything that has happened to you and everything that you've done and your approaches to your perseverance, your drive, your hard work. It's really, really inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Thank you, Felipe. It was really nice chatting with you. You too. Thank you. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommended for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.